What up, what up, everybody? This is Double G for the Fight Game Podcast. Got a little bit of a bonus edition show this weekend. If you heard our last episode, John and I talked about uh, a couple of different things, including the G1 upcoming, as well as an old school Raw edition from 1993, where we are introduced to Lex Express. So, because we were talking about those things, uh, and uh, I didn't want to fit more information about that into that show, it was already pretty long, I decided to create an additional uh, episode for this weekend. So what we're going to do is we're going to bring on Brady Childs, who was at the G1 show in Dallas. Uh, he was there live. I hung out with him over the uh, over that uh, that Friday, and uh, and we, we got to chit-chat. So he's going to come on and just talk about that show, and we'll talk a little bit more about the G1. And then after that, we'll bring on Jason Hagholm, who desperately wanted to talk about the Stars and Stripes Challenge from July 4th, 1993 with Lex Luger body slamming Yokozuna. So I told him I would bring him on and we'll do sort of a, a bonus edition. So that's what we have here this weekend. Uh, so first, let's bring on Brady. Brady, what's going on? Hey, Garrett. How are you? Good. How you doing? I'm good. You were telling me before we, we, uh, we actually started recording that you guys are actually preparing for a possible hurricane. What's going on? Yeah, so it's a tropical storm right now, and it's headed, like, right toward New Orleans. So, like, I've, I don't know. I, th- I know some parishes were, uh, parishes or counties in Louisiana for all you Yankees. Uh, some <laughs> parishes were evacuated, and New Orleans is, like, going to have the pumps working on overdrive. Uh, they don't think the levees will breach, but we saw that worked out, you know, in 2005. Right. And, and so uh, it should be, like, the worst flooding since Katrina and I'm a little bit up higher than that by about, you know, 45 minutes or so. So by the time it gets to me, we should be okay. But, you know, we're prepping everything just in case for like extended power outages or, you know, whatnot. So I have a buddy in New Orleans, friend of the show, Rodney, a.k.a. Rod the Bod, who we got to come on our, uh, our, our WrestleMania preview show all the way back in April uh, when we were in New York. And when we were talking to him about it, he seemed to believe that it was a little bit overblown and and maybe there's more fear of, like you said, sort of what could happen versus maybe what will happen. But, I mean, it does sound like a super serious thing. Oh, sure. Yeah, like people people down there like have zero trust for like the Army Corps of Engineers anymore since Katrina. I mean, it's just like, I mean, just people never... I mean, New Orleans is still recovering from that. Yeah. I mean, Katrina dispersed, like, a large population of people throughout, like, all of Louisiana, parts of Texas, and even, like, up further north. So, like, we have, like, a displants living in Houston, a ton in, like, Zachary, which is, like, a Baton Rouge suburb. I mean, it's it was wild. And you could still go down there and see, you know, properties that were destroyed or damaged or you know, just clean foundations along where the, you know, near where the levee is. Or uh, every now and then you can still go buy some doors with like, uh, that have the uh, little like X on it. And they do like symbols, like uh, fire department will do symbols for like, uh, all right, how many people were in here? How many were dead? So on and so forth. And like each little thing means something. So if you go into right parts of New Orleans, you can still see that like 19 years, no, 14 years later. Right. Well, you know, we uh, we hope for the best and and wish you luck in, in dealing with that. Hopefully hopefully nothing uh, terrible happens. But 
when I saw you in Dallas for the uh, G1 weekend in Dallas, and um, you know, I was talking, I was talking to folks about, you know, I couldn't use my tickets. I had purchased them literally the the second they went on sale. I had to come back home, had some other stuff. And I, you know, I put them online. I was like, oh, maybe I'll put them up on StubHub. But because the show wasn't necessarily uh, sold out, um, I wasn't going to be able to to get rid of the tickets for, you know, for anything less than a huge discount. And I was like, yeah, why why even get a discount? I just want to give them to people who I know will enjoy them. And um and I I, I found uh, yourself as well as another another person uh, Kevin and mm-hmm. I just said guys just use them hopefully it's a great show I think it'll be a great show and and then I told you I said you know maybe we'll we'll get on we'll get online and talk about it so that's what we're doing now we're gonna talk a little bit about the live show from from Dallas last weekend which kicked off the G one we'll talk a little bit about you know the rest of the G one but overall like how was it as a live show. Well, first off, thank you. Like I like I already did this, but like I cannot thank you enough for that. I had a blast uh, stand down there. I got to see some other friends. I got to meet you, Dave. Uh, see a couple of my friends from the uh, Mania weekend from two years ago in New Orleans, and so like I had a blast. First time in Dallas too, and that was I was staying in a really cool part of town. I loved it. Uh, the show was great. Uh, so the thing that I noticed, at least to me was uh, I usually love the undercard tag matches. I don't watch them all the time, but they're usually good. Like, they hover around that three-star range usually, even though they go, like, eight minutes and feature young boys and stuff. But being there live, I don't know if it was just because they were, you know, short, just had, like, a bunch of moves, and there wasn't really, a, you know, it was just playing the hits that they didn't seem like particularly great matches, but they just didn't seem, like, as hot as they usually do when I'm watching them on World but uh, I haven't watched anything back on TV yet, so I don't know if it's like, you know, if it holds up better than it did live. But all the G1 matches, to me, like, uh, the way I felt about them is pretty similar to how everyone, you know, watching on TV felt. Like, uh, that, uh, I think but Dave gave four and a half to the main, to Tanahashi Osprey, which was mine. I went, like, around, like, four and a quarter or so in the Osprey Archer. That seems to be consensus. Mm-hmm. Uh, three and three quarters. So, like, that on that uh, Kenta Abushi match where he, you know, shredded his ankle. Yeah. Because uh, that's the one. Okay, that's an interesting one because uh, live, his kicks were loud as hell. Like, they were beating the crap out of each other. And you could hear, you could hear it, like, loud and clear. And everyone live that I saw and talked to, like, loved the match. They thought it was really, really good. And almost, like, everyone on t- everyone else watching on World considered it, like, a disappointment. And... I guess it just didn't get over on you know TV for whatever reason, whether it's sound or just like being in the crowd for you know Kenta's you know return to being Kenta with the you know the funny trunks and the hard kicks and everything. But uh, and Sonata Saber was like uh, they had they ran that match like almost that same exact match back uh, sometime last year where Sonata out wrestled Saber. Mm-hmm. He's like in storyline he's a better technical wrestler than Zach. He's like the only one who can you know solve him. Yeah. And uh, they ran that same match, and uh, he won by submission. No, by uh, European Clutch. That's mm-hmm. how Sonata beat him last time, so a little bit of continuity. And that was a really good match. The crowd from the beginning, like, at the beginning, like, it just looked so empty. And you're wondering, like, okay, are people going to file in, you know, for the main, or you know, like, as the card goes on or whatever? Because, like, I know, uh, like, Dallas, you know, can be hard to get around. It was really hot. Uh, there was weather coming because uh, it was raining. It was uh, starting to sprinkle when we got out. 
And so I figured, okay, it'll fill up later. And it never really did. Yeah. Uh, the paid was what, slightly over 4,000. And they were originally trying to do 10,000 for this and then scaled down by closing off, uh, what all the upper deck. There are only uh, two sections open, I believe the lower bowl and then the, uh, middle row, the mm -hmm. middle bowl. And they had, uh, like about a quarter of it closed off because of the uh, staging. And uh, that's something else too. Like when I've been to uh, New Japan Ring of Honor joint shows, like I went to, uh, what was it? Uh, what was the one? That, the, the one where they ran Kenny and, Co uh, Kenny and Cody at the, in New Orleans. And like from everyone that I was talking to within my group, it's like everyone wants to go and see New Japan. Like they don't really care much about Ring of Honor. They're there to see, you know, Kenny and Cody and Tanahashi and Ishii and uh, Hangman Ibushi, things like that. And so, like, you're going there, you're seeing New Japan wrestlers, but you're not getting the New Japan experience. You're getting, like, a Ring of Honor presentation. And they, uh, for this show, and even better, the press conference, it was like, you know, being in Japan, except with a bunch of white people. <laughs> like, you have the Japanese guy trying to, you know, speaking in Japanese and then, you know, trying to do English like, like they do, you know, when you're watching on World. It's like, oh, my God, like, this is what we want. This is so great. Uh, the only thing that lacked, and, you know, the G1 opener is like, well, it's a big show. It's not like one of their biggest shows of the year. They don't go all out for, you know, pyro and lights and things like that, like they do for the final or for Dominion or the Dome or whatever. So it was a relatively simple setup. They had a little bit of smoke. Uh, they had a little bit of a... Uh, they didn't have a Tron. They never do. I think they had a little bit of a screen. But, you know, it was fairly simple. But uh, it was enough. The crowd loved it. They loved, the, you know, the old uh, Japanese ring uh, Japanese ring entrance. Uh, ring, ring announcer, I mean. And, uh, you know, all that. So it really was befitting of, like, the New Japan experience instead of, like, watered-down Puro. You know what I mean? Right, right. So go, let's go back to the, to the Ibushi and Kenta match because... I watched it on TV. I thought it was a good match. I didn't have any real problems with it. I think um, I think there was a, a little bit of Kenta trying to, um, you know, he, he's he's he, he's trying to find his way back, right? Like he's in right. the middle of this of this new version of himself, which we hope is an old version of himself. But you know, he he's come from WWE where he had to change his style. He had to change the way that he thought about wrestling. There was a lot of frustration with him getting hurt. And so for him to come back and have a really good match with Coda, which, you know, it wasn't an, it wasn't the greatest match. It wasn't, you know, maybe expectations from the, from the fan base was a little too high, but I thought the match was totally fine. They put him over strong I mean, hopefully, you know, he may get put over strong again against Tanahashi just to just to make sure that, you know, people know that that, you know, he's back and he's going to be a competitor here. And so I I, I give him a little bit of, um, you know, I, I, I'm not I'm not going to say that, you know, he's he was a disappointment in any way. You got to give him a little bit of credit that coming from where he came from and being, you know, outside of, of that universe uh, and and with WWE, like he was, he, he maybe he was maybe a little bit rusty, but he's also got to sort of find himself again. So I was totally fine with the match. I fully expect him to have an even better match with Tanahashi, and uh, yeah, and and I, I I don't know, I don't know why so many people were down on the match. I think maybe they just expected him to come out with a five star match out of the gate or something. 
Well, like, you know, Ibushi is, like, is one of those guys, like, one of, you know, the handful of guys in that company that can go out and have, like, a four-star match with anyone. Like, he had, he had an outstanding match with, like, Cody Rhodes, who had maybe the worst, you know, title defense of Okada's legendary run in, uh, what's that, Cow Palace or the Walter Pyramid? One of those. And, uh... Yeah, it so, was you know, in Long you're, Beach. you're going in there, you're expecting a lot, and especially with those two styles. But, like, Kenta's been wrestling, like, WWE since before I started. So he signed in, like, 2014, right? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think he was gone for five years. Right. It's a long time to go back. And, like, I know he was wrestling, you know, not that long. But after he left, he was doing some stuff on 205 Live. But coming back and trying to work that style, a style you haven't worked in half a decade, that's a lot. You're There's going to be a little bit of getting your sea legs back. You know, it's ring rust is real, no matter what Dominic Cruz says, you know? Right. So it's, it's something that hopefully he'll fit into. He's, he's had like, you know, several surgeries since then. He's not as young as he used to be noticeably older. He's not in the great shape that he was in before, mm-hmm. but you know, he's in fine enough shape, so but uh, let's go hopefully back. He'll get it back. Let's go back to the crowd. You talked a little bit about the crowd. Now, obviously, there wasn't as many people there as they had hoped. And, we, you know, we knew early on the ticket sales seemed to be stuck around 3,000 for the longest time, even before, you know, they announced uh, they announced matches and, and before they announced Okada versus Tanahashi. What, but, you know, I think it universally was, was lauded as, like, one of the best crowds, you know, for, for a show in a long time. Like, like, what did you think about the live crowd? And, you know, did, did, how, did it accentuate sort of the feeling in the building, uh, in, in making these, uh, these matches feel as special as they were? Oh yeah. Like Tanahashi Okada felt off the charts. Cause even though, like Tanahashi and Okada can just get, like go through their motions and have, you know, an amazing match, which is kind of what they did. You know, they, they didn't really do anything out of the ordinary except for the high fly flow to the outside, which is, I mean, has gotten to this point to become pretty standard in big Tanahashi matches, even though his knees are shot. Yep. So it, but they're like so great. It just kind of, you know, becomes an excellent match. And the crowd helped out a lot with that. They wanted to see this entire show work. Even, even if they were chanting for Red Shoes at one point. Red <laughs> Shoes did, they loved Red Shoes. Red Shoes did something during the Ibushi Kinta match and, I saw a bunch of people get mad online about it. It's like, eh, you know, American fans are going to do, you know, whatever. It's fine. But, you know, for the most part, they were good. They never chanted, you know, any, you know, really anything negative. They didn't really heckle anyone. Mm-hmm. They were, uh, you know, there were times where, you know, they were, you know, fairly quiet, you know, kind of like, you know, they wanted to be Japanese fans. But, you know, they got fairly loud. But, uh, yeah, they knew everything. They loved, you know, Yano, Juice. Uh, they love the G.O.D. entrance. So, like, these are, you know, hardcores who want to see New Japan work in the States, and we're going to do their damnedest to try and make the show, like, you know, the best as, it, as best as it could. Right. So let's look forward a little bit. Uh, how much of the G1 are you going to be able to keep up with, uh, you know, pretty much daily? So in 2017, I watched every match, even though I fell behind. Like, I, cause I always end up falling behind. And uh, last year, I skipped a lot of the, uh, I, like, I pick and chose from a lot of that shallow A-block shows. But, like, both blocks are so stacked that I don't know if I'm going to be able to, like, really miss anything aside from the occasional, like, Fale match or whatever. So I'm going to try and watch as much as I can and, you know, try and keep up to where I can, 
you know, watch the finals unspoiled, which I wasn't able to do last year. Cause that's always like one of the you know best matches of the year. So, uh, I've tried to figure out too, like who's going to win it. Like I've, I've been saying Naito for like a year and a half now, ever mm-hmm. since he lost the, uh, Wrestle Kingdom main event. It's like, oh, okay, you see where this is going. Naito's going to come back in two years and win the G1 and then beat Okada for the belt at Tokyo Dome in like 2021. No, in 2020. And so I have that, but I'm looking at the A block. I'm trying to figure out like who's going to come out of this because like Tanahashi's old. He might be, you know, shot by the end of the tournament and he won his, you know, he won the whole thing last year. Okada's not going to win his block. I don't know if they're going to run Ibushi Naito back again so soon. And that leaves like Saber and Kenta. And I don't know if they want to put like, it would be weird for them to put Kenta over that strong, mm-hmm. like at first, cause they like to build those things up kind of. And, uh, Saber, I don't know if they want to put Saber in a match. Well, I guess him and Naito could, you know, would draw along with the final. They could sell at Budokan, but it would feel a little bit weird because Saber hasn't really been up to much aside from, you know, the occasional European stuff, the uh, new Japan cup. Uh, but who knows? They might, it's probably just going to be a bushy and I'm overthinking it. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, the thing that I hope is the, uh, you know, as, as we've heard, as we know, just the day in and day out, um, what, you know, wear on the, on their body from wrestling, such hard matches, long matches and you know there 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 are some breaks you know i mean mean, we have we have saturday sunday monday and then they have two days off and then they pick up again but i mean it is a really rigorous tournament with abushi already having the ankle problem with uh he and naito having these crazy matches where it looks like both guys are you know are just in bad shape after they're over i do wonder if you know Whatever the plan is, like you have to be really wary of, of what the injuries are and what the situation is going to become because you know you you could you could have a situation where the guy that you have planned and you know that ghetto's booked to win the match mm-hmm. is is hurt and and you know is injured and and so both of those guys that you named Ibushi and Naito, I can't imagine they're in picture perfect shape even though you know when dave and i in uh, well, mostly dave i produced the podcast when he interviewed coda coda was like oh yeah i'm fine and it's like how can you be possibly fine right. you know so i mean that that that's something to that i'm going to keep an eye on too is just because of the pounding that these guys take like just that that's one thing to consider is you know if there's going to be an injury or two in there isn't it amazing how few days that company loses from its top stars like because it seems like in WWE, it seems like someone's always out with something. And over there, aside from like, you know, like what, Hanare tore his ACL, Honma broke his neck, but, you know, Honma's, Homa was crazy, like, you know, for a long, long time. And uh, who else? Uh, Kitamura had that, you know, had, you know, whatever happened to him, yeah. you know, allegedly a motorcycle accident, but there's like a million things floating around with him. But like you never like I've never seen oh Shibata, of course, but uh, I've never seen like Okada, Naito, Obushi, like really take many days off for at least for at least a, a, a public injury. Uh, Tanahashi gets surgeries every now and then. But like who knows if like if that's even like, you know, a shoot because like Tanahashi injures, quote unquote, something every year and it gets worked <laughs> on for the entire tournament and, you know, it makes his comeback and wahoo so it's i think it's a testament to like their schedule and the way they you know set up you know house shows with tag matches and 
you know, the more efficient way that they travel, you know, with the, using a lot of the trains, uh, I'm guessing they don't have to pay for their own lodging and travel like WWE does. And uh, they're able to take a lot of those days off where you get like house shirt, you know, a T-shirt Naito working mm-hmm. his house show style where he, you know, doesn't, you know, you know takes two bumps, you know, <laughs> goes home with a Destino. But yeah, G1's a test for all that because uh, what AJ did an interview like in 2015 or 16, right before he went to WWE with Dave and Brian talking about how, you know, awful that schedule can be and G, uh, juice just did an interview that uh, got put up uh, yesterday mm-hmm. talking and he, uh, he talked about how he uh, torqued up his knee in like this first match with evil in 20 what was it 2017 his first G1 and he had to work the entire tournament with like a knee injury so it's like uh, these guys are tough yeah, <laughs> I mean, absolutely if, if they're gonna work through it if they can all right, so let, let's uh, quickly transition because I want to ask you uh, about uh, your, your your baseball stuff. So where are you, where are you writing these days? Oh, I am uh, just started writing for Over the Monster, which is a Red Sox blog on SB Nation. And I'm uh, trying to get stuff up there uh, like more regularly, but there's uh, you know we're kind of in the all-star break right now. So I'm just trying to you know, come up with ideas to write as they enter and uh, enter the second half, chasing that wild card spot. What are, so what what is your uh, what are your thoughts on you know who's who's gonna who's gonna come out of uh, of each league for for the World Series? Do you do you uh, do you have a the National League seems a little bit more interesting than the American League to me? But who are your picks to come out and and who could be heavy? Uh, who could be some some playoff teams to keep an eye on? All right, so we haven't even gotten to like the trade deadline yet. So we're gonna have like all these teams making these you know big or marginal changes you know coming up in the next three weeks or so. And uh, the American league is pretty much like already wrapped up except for like the second wild card spot because half the, like half the American league is tanking and, you know, three fifths of the AL central are tanking and the, uh, what AL, the Astros are so good that no one's going to catch up to them. And, you know, the Mariners are tanking. The A's aren't good. The angels aren't competent. The Rangers were in a tank and now they're like in competition for a wild card spot. And the Orioles and Jays are tanking. So, like, the, all the teams that are, like, trying to compete, save the Indians, are kind of, like, in contention for, you know, already winning their division. They have it locked up. Or there's, like, that wild card spot. And then the National League, like, the Dodgers, like, had this thing locked down, like, by May. Then you have, what, the NL Central is still kind of up for grabs. And uh, the NL West is a kind of a tire fire because the – no, the NL East because the Mets, uh, the Phillies have – had like a real up and down season. So it looks like the Braves are going to take that. So like the playoff field's like almost entirely set unless something crazy happens. So there'll be some uh, items like Bumgarner might move. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a couple others. Teams refuse to like, you know, they hate taking money now. So like if, you, if you're willing to take on a contract, you can get, you know, for like very little prospects. Uh, so it'll be neat to see how that folds out. But uh, the like the Sox themselves have kind of a predicament because they have this. Uh, they went, they blew past the luxury tax last year when they won the World Series, mm-hmm. and they've been kind of tiptoeing around it all year. Like they really should have brought back Kimbrel and probably signed Keuchel, but that would have put them way over the luxury tax, and they just don't want to do it. But now they're talking about adding another starter. I don't know how they're going to do that without going over the luxury tax. So and their farm system sucks too. So I don't know what they're going to do. Yeah, it'll be it'll be fun. MLB playoffs are always great. 
All right, man. Well, uh, thanks for for jumping on here. So uh, thanks to Brady. We're going to bring on Jason in a second to talk about the Lex Express. Okay, we're back here with Jason. Going to talk about some 1993 Raw. How old would you have been at this point? I would have been three years old. And were you actually watching the TV? Well... I didn't get to be a fan until 94, but like this whole storyline stuff that they're doing with Lex and with Brett kind of filters in with uh, me falling right in the the middle of like the end of the WrestleMania 10. So like their backtracking of all those builds for those matches coincides with around this time. But yeah, uh, Noah was not watching, but it'd only be a couple more months before I discovered the gloriousness of (laughs) Vince McMahon's professional wrestling. So John and I covered both uh, the the pre-4th of July Stars and Stripes Challenge Raw and the post one. And we're going to move into a series of Raws where... It's going to be all about the Lex Express, and he's going to jump on this bus, and he's going to go from town to town. And so, have you gone and watched the actual Stars and Stripes Challenge on the WWE Network? I watched it, as like, last year as soon as they released it. Like, it's a lot of, some of it's a lot of, like, dead footage because it's all unedited, but it's fantastic. Yeah, so it's almost like they just shot it as B-roll. They're like, oh, we're just going to use this as B-roll, so, you know, you don't have to really get in tight and and so you have Todd Pettengill and Randy Savage hosting the thing and bringing in random guys here or there who is your favorite athlete that they brought in to try and slam Yokozuna I'd well I think if you're a wrestling fan it'd have to be Bill Fralick because of his history with professional wrestling obviously uh I believe Bill Fralick could have uh, didn't want to be drafted by certain teams in the NFL and said he was going to do pro wrestling uh, back around the 85 draft. But Bill Fralick, obviously, in the WrestleMania 2 Battle Royal, was on WCW TV talking about uh, joining WCW because he was in a contract holdup with the Atlanta Falcons in 92. And then there is Bill Fralick again trying to do it for America. But I mean, got to give a sh- the, the jockey was also one of my favorites because <laughs> like, that was something you know Vince was like yeah this jockey he's gonna do it um and peter taglianetti of the pittsburgh penguins who had won i believe two stanley cups so i gotta give love to the nhls i know there was a couple basketball players but i don't really remember them too much okay so joe morris who was a running back for the new york giants in the mid to late 80s and he was actually a really good running back but so he comes out he may have been the first one and so joe Morris, like to me in 1993, Joe Morris was like probably the the biggest star from an actual NFL standpoint. He was probably the you know Freilich was also really good, um, and maybe maybe the bit maybe the best actual player was Freilich, but Joe Morris was such a good player, and so you know he gets introduced and it was on I think it was on the Raw right before he does the little thing with uh, with Savage in a New York Giants stadium. And so Joe Morris comes out, and he's really small uh, height-wise, but he's, he's kind of like a thick running back. And so I'm like, oh, wow, Joe Morris is actually going to do this thing. And to show you how little Joe Morris knew about pro wrestling and body slams, 
He goes into it like he's trying to put Yokozuna on his shoulders. That was his version of doing a body slam. So I was very disappointed in in uh, in Joe here. You know, some twenty six years later or whatever it is. Uh, but um, so uh, Scotty Burrell was probably the other athlete at the time who was a little noteworthy because he was a first round draft pick of that. Uh, NBA draft, which would have happened probably the month before that. So he's wearing his Charlotte Hornets colors with the teal jean shorts and stuff. So he would have been another big name at that time. And, and he didn't... he's the one that gets the Bobby Heenan treatment where Bobby goes, yeah, he's the smartest one because he doesn't even want to slam Yoko. Right, right. And then, um, the uh, like you said, Freilich was the best one. And I, and I thought... You know, they gave him a little bit of something, right? Because he's the only non-wrestler who actually even gets a, a leg of Yoko's off the ground, and he was so he was so perfect. Like he would have been really he would have been really good from a persona standpoint in pro wrestling because he just had you know he had the mentality. You know, I'm sure uh, you know being friends with Missy Hyatt probably helped as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for sure. <laughs> but uh, a couple other folks who who I recognized, um, George Martin, who like he he co- he goes up to 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 Savage and he's like, look, you know, I got a I got a special plan here, and then he pulls five dollars <laughs> out of his pocket as if he was going to give Yokozuna five dollars to to I don't know jump into his arms. How, how do you how do you get how do you pay off a body slam? You still have to pick the guy up to slam him. Yeah, that was weird. Lee Rusan and his sweet jeans. I mean, <laughs> maybe he was going to get Yoko off with the ugly set of fashion. But yeah, I mean, I mean, some of not the best. I, I know George Martin also showed up at WrestleMania 11 for the interview because he was a teammate of Lawrence Taylor. But you guys are still a couple years away from that. Yes, yes. We that that is that. Just, just for since since you mentioned it, worst WrestleMania ever, right? Uh, yeah, up there for sure. Cause like nine is bad. Don't get me wrong, especially with the horrendous how uh, Hogan you know wins the belt. But at least you had that decent Tatanka Shawn Michaels match and the Steiner's head shrinkers. Eleven had nothing, like nothing at all. Yeah, absolutely. So and that awful Bob Backlund Bret Hart match. Oh my God. What do you say? What do you say? <laughs> <I> like, yeah. <laughs> All right. So when it comes to the pro wrestlers, you have Bob Backlund, who was never, you know, never really known for his body slamming efficiency. Uh, maybe if he wanted to give Yokozuna an atomic drop, I would have brought Bob Backlund in here. Or double he, leg takedown. He's still in his, uh, you know, he's still in his his babyface mode. He he will he he hasn't turned heel quite yet, so he's still babyface Bob Backlund. Yeah, he hasn't um, snapped yet. So Scott Steiner, Scott Steiner like slaps the taste out of Yoko's mouth before uh, he tries to slam him, and he gets a good aggressive attempt. What do you think, John? And I talked about this on on the the last show, but what do you think? Like all this abuse that Yokozuna just had to take from these guys, like Steiner slaps him, Rick Rick Steiner hits him with a couple Steiner lines. Like Tonka has a mini match with him. <laughs> that is not part of a body slam to fire up, couple chops, and then you know you fail. But at least Yoko got the super kick on him. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's just like. Yoko just had to take it? Like, is that in the contract? Like, you're going to get, they're going to try to body slam you, but you also just have to take all of this abuse at the same time and not fire back. 
Yeah, and that was weird, but I mean, the only one he does fire back on is Tatanka. But yeah, like, I, I maybe just they needed some more entertainment out of it because some of those at, like real athletes didn't really give much of an effort and. It was kind of a weird thing to just be standing around on the 4th of July, nonetheless, <laughs> just watching someone get body slammed. But, yeah, the the pro guy, the wrestlers obviously had to spice it up a bit, and they definitely did. But poor Yoko having to get his bumps in or his chops in. So then uh, Crush probably has the best attempt out of everybody. He gets this big, this big applause. You know, he comes out, and he's fired up. And this is going to set up a match uh, in a couple of weeks on Raw, where mm-hmm. he where he gets a chance to face Yokozuna. But you know he has a, he has the best attempt so far. He kind of gets him halfway up, and then his back goes out. And so they give Crush a little bit of something, and then they save Savage for the end. And Savage is sort of treated like uh, like one of the football players. He bar- he doesn't even get Yokozuna you know off the floor at all. And then we think the thing is over. The uh, the helicopter comes out, and all of the crowd starts chanting for Hogan. Yeah, and I, I mean, I mean, you know, I'm trying to think of what I remembered back back then when I was watching the television, and John and I were talking about how we originally thought this was going to be broadcast live on on uh, like the USA Network because they kept promoting it and they kept promoting it. We're like, oh wow, where can we watch this thing? And you know, it wasn't on TV, and then you had to wait until Monday. But so. That- that aspect of it baffles me because they promoted the heck out of it. Like the mania, like of whenever this, like the day before, like is on the set of this. You'd think there would be a live broadcast. Nothing. You just get clips throughout Raw, Superstars, Challenge of this amazing moment that happens. But I mean, can you imagine how much more maybe of an impact it would have had if they aired it live on USA? And I just wonder because from from like a production standpoint, you actually have to produce it like a show, and you have to have all these guys sort of ready to go, and uh, and that that might make it a little harder. But um, so Lex comes out; he's wearing this uh, red, white, and blue shirt tucked into some high waisted uh, light denim jeans. No belt. No belt. And uh, he shoves Bobby Heenan aside. Which I didn't catch on the um, on the, the 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 WWE Network version when I was watching it. I didn't I didn't know I don't know if they didn't shoot it, but they show it on the recap on Raw the next night. So he comes in, and of course you know he's got to take the shirt off, and then the dumbest thing happens, which is Yokozuna decides that this is not a body slam challenge to him. This is a fight, and so. The way that he acknowledges that it's a fight is he goes into one side of the corner and gets into like a football tackle stance, which telegraphs that he's going to charge at Lex Luger. He charges at him. Luger moves out of the way. He bangs his head on the turnbuckle. Luger hits him with the illegal forearm and then gets him up for a you know decent body slam but it wasn't like he you know it's this is not hogan andre this is uh you know this is a good body slam but it it gave the announcers a chance to talk about how it was a hip toss uh, especially fuji and then he slams him and then lex luger is now on everyone's shoulders he's the baby face who saved the usa and uh and and he wins the body slam challenge so when you first get into wrestling and this is kind of like your because you know, I, I'd seen Luger for years and years and years, but you get to see Luger 
first and foremost as like Mr. USA Lex Luger. Like, what was your thought about the whole thing? Well, I mean, to me, I think it's one of the best buildups they ever did for someone to be a babyface to where obviously at this point Vince has put the ball, the rocket boosters right on Lex Luger's back. He's going to be the next Hulk Hogan. And I think they did a tremendous job because in just one moment, you forget that this guy was the narcissist Lex Luger, a very arrogant heel, uh, only caring about himself. I mean, even as a matter of fact, before this aired, like the superstars, they had a tape match with him as the narcissist. And bam, here he is, the man made in the USA, the, the poster boy of America, about to go on a tour on a bus for around America, uh, only partly on the bus. He did fly to a lot of those cities, but... I mean, I think this is one of the most well done things that WWF has ever or WWE has ever done. I mean, it's just shot clipped so well of their their next Yankee doodle dandy hero that this company's always needed. And uh, it's always how I'm going to remember him. Uh, I mean, the close up of the stare down between Luger and Yoko was one of the more iconic shots they ever had. Uh, I always enjoyed this. Like when I was a kid, like I w- was confused for a while that I didn't understand I was a Canadian, not an American, because I was <laughs> so enjoyed this angle so much. Uh, and it's just so well done. And I, it's unfortunate that they didn't really go off full all the way in as Vince maybe had one of his first mind changes going into the SummerSlam but obviously you will get towards that as we're getting towards the the road to that SummerSlam but this to me is is just magic it's what makes wrestling so great so obviously we are leading towards a time where Luger fails to win the match and then they hold it off and then when we get to WrestleMania he's actually not the favorite anymore it turns back to 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 Bret Hart but when you watched back and then you kind of went backwards and started to see the total package Lex Luger stuff because of you know because of how you grew up watching wrestling do you identify with Luger more as this version of Lex or the total package version of Lex it has to be this version for me. Like this is how, you know, when you get into something, the first rem memories you have of certain people is how you're always going to remember. Like I'm sure – I mean maybe not for you but like I'm sure one of your top memories of Sting is the surfer boy Sting and not oh, so much the crow. Like that's who you're always going to consider Sting as. I have to consider Lex Luger as the total uh, – as the man made in the USA. Like I always wanted that red, white, and blue Lex Luger uh, <laughs> shirt. Uh, you know, I always thought he was definitely a, a interesting uh, wrestler. My mom always liked him. Like he was. That's always how I'm going to remember him as. Now, as I got older, I appreciated what he'd done uh, in the NWA slash WCW, and then going back to WCW, uh, his stuff there. Maybe obviously they got him a little bit more booked solidly. But this run here in '93 is probably the best run, or arguably one of the best runs anyone's ever had in the business. Interesting that you say that because I think most people see this overall as a failure for Lex. Well, I mean, in the end, yeah, it's definitely going to be a failure because he never wins the title. But if they don't change their mind and put uh, the title on Lex, it's going to be looked as at least a solid attempt or a solid run. But for me, I always considered that to be the run for Luger. But like I said, that's how I got into wrestling. Uh, but you can't help but blame like Vince was 
in a bit of a power struggle. Obviously, he was going through some stuff with the attorneys. Lex didn't have that super physique that maybe could have kept the heat on him, whereas Brett didn't. And the fans genuinely were interested in Bret Hart more. But, you know, when you go, I mean, I don't want to jump forward your guys' podcast here. When you get to that rumble in 94 where they have that face-off between Lex and Brett, I mean, the crowd is still kind of split between the two of them, even though they have that interesting finish there where both guys go over the top. But for me, I think this was a great little run there for Lex. And it just if Vince doesn't have a mind change, who knows? Like that could have been a huge moment for Lex and his career could have he could have been a WWF guy for the rest of his life. So just to kind of put a cap on this, uh, as uh, as we head towards SummerSlam and then uh, WrestleMania, when you look back at, at like your fondest memory of pro wrestling, like because I mean you actually were a kid going through the Attitude Era stuff, which is probably fairly risque for you as a preteen. And then you 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 know you go through the uh, WWE beating WCW and all that stuff. But is this kind of the thing that you that when you think about pro wrestling, is this is this the era where you're you think most fondly of? Yeah, like you'll I'll always find myself trying to watch. Uh, anything from this time or if I'm on the network board it's going to be something from 93, 94, uh, 95 like the good thing for me with the network is I can also like check out what the competition WCW was doing at this point I mean not much but they still had you know Vader who was one of my favorites uh, my first favorite heel wrestler but uh, yeah this is to me an amazing time frame like yes I grew up in the Attitude Era which some say is the greatest time frame for anyone to be a fan, but this stuff to me, it's like it got me into wrestling. It got me into being a fan of this crazy business that it is, and it's just something that you can go. It's like rewatching your favorite movie. I can just re, I go relive all this. Like I'll re, like SummerSlam '94. I'll rewatch that thing forever. Never get bored. I still have the <laughs> same energy that I'm watching it for the very first time. Uh, probably my favorite show. Uh, that that company or even in wrestling history has ever produced but yeah this is the time frame where uh that got me to be a fan and it's it holds a great memory and it's very fondly in my heart okay so quick quick change of subjects um because we've been talking about the g1 on this show and john and i are going to continue for the next couple weeks uh do you have a, a plan to kind of keep up with it and and to to try and and stay current with it or what what are you what are you thinking about it oh my plan would definitely be to uh especially for like the events obviously in japan you just gotta maybe wait for them to fully be uploaded to new japan world and then catch up as much as i can if not i know john pollock does a tremendous job covering the whole thing can get caught up on his rundowns to keep you up to date if with how hectic life can be it's it's a lot to try to keep up with especially how long the tournament is uh, but those will be my plans either if i have the time to be able to get up and watch watch it live wait for the the re-uploads the on-demand features or john pollock is always a safe bet for your new japan fix during this g1 tournament i know it's crazy how uh how much how how much they're able to to keep up with it and it becomes like their life for you know the next couple of weeks and you know that's the service they provide that's why they're good at what they do uh, all right so uh so so that's it 
for for here i want to thank jason for jumping on i want to thank uh brady uh also for jumping on jason quickly give uh give your uh twitter handle that's at j j uh last name hagholm h-a-g-h-o-l-m and the number one and and brady is at hp joker um also quickly just a quick sort of uh how is the uh how how is the the broadcasting stuff going i know you've been doing some mma shows yeah, we, uh, we're getting ready for our next show in Ottawa at the end of August, August 24th at the Eye Center in Ottawa. Uh, going to be heading up to Burlington with the promotion to be filming some stuff for some fight announcements. Uh, pretty exciting stuff. Some other exciting things happening for me as well as we're gearing up for the end of summer and the start of uh, junior hockey and more MMA and university sports. Don't want to rush the summer, but it's exciting for everything that's uh, happening. Awesome. Yeah. So uh, you can also find Brady at at HP Joker on Twitter, Jason at jhagholm one on Twitter. Thanks to both of them. So for Brady and Jason, I'm Double G. We will see you when we see you. Peace out.